Let me tell you, your greatest assets are actually what has gone wrong because that is what has given me optimism because I keep realizing, oh, wait a minute, that just happened, I didn't die. Oh, it's gonna be okay. You learn perseverance and grit. If you have an easy upbringing, if you have too much money and you're too good looking and your life is too easy, you don't have a lot of grit. Are you talking about me? I am talking about you. <laughs> we didn't get the money, came back and realized, okay, we're gonna have to shrink down and I'm gonna fire myself. Do you sleep at all? <laughs> well, when I come home, Actually, <laughs> you don't sound like my that. wife always says after a full day with three kids and they're traveling soccer and ballet and all that jazz too. Then I come home. And I was like, what are you doing? And like, I'm listening to a podcast. <laughs> Hello, I am Dan Simpson. I'm 43 years old. I live in Nashville, Tennessee, and it's my pleasure to serve as the CEO for Tzatziki's Mediterranean Cafe. We are nearly 100 location Greek and Mediterranean inspired restaurant that's centered around the Southeast and growing across the United States. And it's excited to be leading one of the better for you brands. So do you like have a Mediterranean background? How did you decide you want to do a Mediterranean cafe? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Actually, the credit goes to our founder, Keith and Amy Richards, back in 1997, took a what was really just a romantic getaway trip to Greece. And at the time she was working for the airlines and he was a cafe manager and a chef in Birmingham, Alabama. Bottegas turned out to be James Beard winning chef that he worked with. And they took this trip. They were inspired by not just the colorful food and the beautiful Mediterranean ocean, but the culture there, the experience they had with the Greek the warmth, the couple that greeted them at the door and welcomed them in and treated them like family. And three hours would go by, they actually went to the same restaurant, same cafe every night of their vacation. And on the flight back said, this is what we want to do. We want to bring people together through this Greek culture, Southern hospitality, and this colorful, healthy food. And ever since 1997, the first restaurant started in 1998. So I joined Tzatziki's about five years ago and no Greek background, but I do have a food background, a farming background, and some of the things that led me into this space. Yeah, I was going to wonder. I didn't know if you were on the trip with them. No, I actually took my first trip with Keith this January of this year, 2019. And for the first time, got to go to the places that inspired the brand. And man, what a beautiful place. Where were the places? So we know, because I always find that interesting wherever you end up going with locations here. It was both the mainlands and also some of the Greek Isles, everything from Athens to Petros, Corinth, out to a variety of the Greek Isles. There are a thousand what used to be city-states or polis, if you know your Greek history. And then there are just hundreds of islands. They hopped around a bunch of the islands. Our time, we spent mostly on the mainland visiting actually the farmers that supply about 10 of our ingredients today. Okay. So you get a good amount of your ingredients from over there as well? Yeah. we It's been really fun working on our supply chain since I've been a part of the brand. And we import about 10 ingredients, ones that Keith really feels are really important to the flavors to that region. So everything from Mediterranean sea salt. And by the way, one of the most beautiful places I have ever been in the world is Petrus, this community where Mediterranean sea salt is grown and harvested. So that's one example, but also we get our olives and our olive oil and our lemon juice. These are some of the key ingredients. But after that, we partner with hosts of American farmers, everything from our feta and Greek yogurt that's made in Wisconsin, green brie there that we partner with, and our lamb all is grown in central Michigan. So we have a lot of those partners and then all the produce and herbs we grow locally. And you say you have about 100 locations? Yeah. By the end of this year, 2019, we should round out 100 locations. Last year was our 20th anniversary and this year we should eclipse 100 locations. And about like how many employees and revenue do you have? The company started out with company-owned and grown stores. Today, we're about a third company-owned and two-thirds franchise. So we really have, over time, have come to realize the importance of the local owner model. Chick-fil-A has made this famous. And a lot of it is you have that person who's deeply connected in the community. That's true of the Greek Cafe that inspired the brand. That's true of Keith and Amy Richards that launched it. And so now we're growing mostly through franchising. We're in 17 states. We are, so across the whole system, if you put us all in one room as one big family, there's about 3,000 employees. We were a little over $100 million in revenue per year. Is there anything else we should know about Tzatziki's before we reel it back to maybe when you graduated and everything so we have a good picture of where we're going with your story? Yeah, I think 
one of the things that attracted me to the brand, other than just the healthy, colorful lifestyle brand, is also the heart of the brand. And I think you'll see how my sort of stepping stones ended up pulling me in this direction. But one of the things Keith did that was unique is when he launched a restaurant, he realized that, yes, like music, like sports, food is one of those sort of ubiquitous things that brings people together of all stripes and flavors. But also that in every community, there's some people that kind of get left out from early on realized that the special needs community were kind of left out and developed a program called the HOPE program, where we now in every location, we partner with the local public school and the special needs youth and adults grow herbs that we actually use in our restaurants. So it was interesting when I look across all the different industries I've worked in and even different restaurant brands, there was something special about Keith and something special about not just a great foodie with a great palate and knowing how to put on a great party, but also a big heart. And those things, as you'll hear in my story, kind of all pulled me in this direction. I feel like I've landed home in some ways. That's definitely key. The heart of the brand, kind of big hearted foodies is very key to who we are as a brand now. Yeah, I think that definitely makes you stand out. And yeah, I'm glad I asked that because I forgot that you kind of touched on that with me before. That's a slight differentiator. We're talking about Greek food, restaurants, and all this other stuff. But the ability to help special needs and also grow the business at the same time, I think is really important. Yeah, it's a great win-win. Yeah. So why don't we talk about how you started getting involved and maybe we'll say where you went to college and then tell us along your entrepreneurial journey exactly how you got here. Yes. Life's always funny, right? When you look backwards, you can kind of make sense of things more than when you try to plot out your resume. Actually, I was born in Philadelphia where my grandfather was a chef and my parents then moved to Maine. So from seven to 17, I grew up in rural Maine. Gardening was a big part of my life. But like many restless 17, 18 year olds, I wanted to get as far away from home as possible. And so I fled to the Tampa Bay area, the beaches of Clearwater, Florida to be a great place for my undergrad. My first year in college, my parents got divorced. That pushed me into something that was kind of important because I had to work full time. I finished college in three years. I was actually heading towards a healthcare path. And so I was pre-med undergrad and with a minor in theology. And so I was kind of exploring my career and also my belief system at the same time. But that sort of pressure of first year pushing me into, okay, got to work full time, got to get through this, pushed me into a work ethic and a pace that sort of carried through my life. It also pushed me into startups. And I worked with a couple startup companies in college. So because I had so much free time, decided to also start songwriting and playing in a band, which continued for a couple years thereafter. Without a clear path at that moment, sort of thrust out into the world, I was now looking at, okay, well, how do I be creative in general? How do I take this startup sensibilities, enjoyment for helping them grow these early stage brands and the fact that I was kind of on my own. So I had to figure this out. And so when you're in the corner, you get creative, you do things that you wouldn't otherwise do. So that was Tampa Bay College for me. We actually came to Nashville a couple of times when I was playing with the band and recorded. So we had a little record deal. We weren't very good. Don't get any big ideas, but it was an amazing experience. And that's what brought me to Nashville. Met my wife, got married in 2000. And that pushed me into about 10 year career in healthcare. But again, not practicing medicine, but more so on the business side of healthcare. And I got to work with really small startups. And I also got really the formational time for me was at a place called AIM Healthcare. When I joined, they might've had about 200 employees. And years later, they sold to United Health Group with about 2000 employees nationwide. And that was an amazing experience because some of the things I learned in college, through those formational years, I got to now live out. Even though I was a young professional, we were growing so fast that things I learned in college, like always be curious. And that in fact, deep curiosity is more powerful than domain experience. And so I'd go work to this healthcare companies and ask a thousand questions and truly understand what they needed as a solution instead of peddling what we typically did. At the time, AIM Healthcare was sat between hospitals and insurance companies in between there are a lot of all the claim submissions from all the providers, the doctors and hospitals all go to the insurance companies. At the time, unfortunately, there's a lot of back and forth where the insurance companies wouldn't pay enough or would pay too much. The claims would be submitted incorrectly. So this huge administrative nightmare that actually weighed down the cost of healthcare. And so our mission at the time was to simplify this part of healthcare. And when I got there, it was exciting because we went from auditors to technology. And that was probably my first big insight, realizing that technology in and of itself is not important. It's really powerful, however, when it actually solves a problem. In this case, we realized actually if you could develop the right technologies, you could intercept all the inbound claims that were going from a hospital doctor to an insurance company, and you could get them right on the front end and prevent the problems in the back end. Went in problem solving, ended up becoming a technologist to help solve these problems, worked there for a lot of years and was able to broker a lot of big multi-million dollar deals that ultimately helped healthcare. 
So were you just eating at tzatziki's all the time and decided you want to become the CEO while you're doing all this? Oh, right. Like I said before, it's like, look at the stepping stones from there. It's like, I'm still a stepping stone or two away from how I got to food. I'm joking, but let's talk about <laughs> how old you are at this point. So you said 10 years. So I'm guessing from 22 to 32. Yes. You're involved kind of in the health field and where you're making a decent salary and just you're going out. I don't know if it's necessarily like what you're learning from these experiences that kind of helped you yeah. to become the CEO of Tzatziki's. Because I think anyone who's listening, if they have a similar job or maybe they're an employee of a company, there's still things that they can learn or pull from there that when they move on to start their own company or take over a company that will help them apply those thoughts as they grow a new company. Yeah, absolutely. These are important details. When I got married, I was making about $7.25 an hour. And I'm a starving musician by definition. We're doing these startup companies and playing in a band and why my wife, Kim, took that risk. I think risk is the key word. Even when I moved to Nashville, we went through a couple months. The first job I had actually in healthcare fell through because of a transaction. And I was without employment for a few months. And you kind of go through the dark night of the soul wondering, this is not the way the plan is supposed to go. It's certainly not a romantic way to start marriage. And even after I got that first job, I think I've made probably about $42,000 in the first job. When I had the opportunity to go to AIM Healthcare, once again, you don't just have a progression of upward mobility in life. Most of the important steps I've made, I've actually taken a step back so I could take a quantum leap forward. So in this case, I went from making $40,000, $42,000, which at the time felt like a fortune. To go to AIM, I had to start at the very bottom. So I went back to making an hourly wage of like $9 an hour to start at the lowest position, which was their culture. And I had to work my way up. Now, granted, in six months, I became a manager of eight people. Another six months, I was managing a group of 80 people. I had huge opportunity to grow with this company if I was willing to take the risk, including cutting my pay initially. And then it was rewarding over that time period, but it's not without risk. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially for small businesses. You don't have the time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers just aren't built for the way you work today. Gusto is here to change all that. They're making payroll, benefits, and HR easy for small businesses. In fact, Nine out of 10 customers say Gusto is easier to use than other payroll solutions. Gusto also saves you time. 72% of customers spend less than five minutes to run payroll. Don't believe all the good things you're hearing about Gusto? Well, just Google them. People love Gusto. And how often do you actually hear someone say they love their payroll provider? So to help support the show, go to gusto.com forward slash millionaire. They're offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. You'll get three months free once you do your first payroll. And again, the link is gusto.com forward slash millionaire. I think that's something important that we just learned from you doing that. It's like the ability of taking a step back that you have to do that. Whenever you're starting a company, if you're making a lot of money as an employee somewhere, well, when you're starting day one with a new company, if we're starting a new one, you're taking a step back no matter yes. what. Unless like somehow magically that day one, you're making just as much money as you did at the old place. But your foresight and willingness to understand that that's what you have to sacrifice in order to go to a higher level. That's exactly right. And it's also every time you shift into a new company or a new role, a new opportunity. It's also you end up working with a different set of people. So who you bring to the table is important, but you're evolving and hopefully growing. I'm reading books like crazy at this time because I can't learn enough fast enough. This is when Jim Collins' Good to Great came out. I remember digesting that and just reading and reading and reading it. And every time I was in a meeting or after a meeting with anybody that seemed intelligent, I would just pepper them with questions. And this is where really my first business mentor, this guy named John, I met and he took me on my first business trip, ironically, which was to Maine of all places. We're standing there in Kennebunkport before we go have this healthcare meeting. And first time I heard the line about, Dan, remember, whatever business you're in, you're always in the people business. And others have said that since then, that rang true with me then. And that has carried me through everything I've ever done since then is the first and foremost, whatever the industry, whatever the value proposition, whatever my income possibilities might be, that the bellwether, that thing that anchored me was, remember, at the end of the day, this is about people. And it is. That was a great experience. And yeah, you got to take risks. If you want to be successful, surround yourself with great people. And I think the other thing I learned there was I got some great advice from one of the ladies that was a VP there. Like you said, I'm in my late 20s at this time. And she was really, really smart and said, hey, 
even if a person doesn't seem that bright, doesn't seem that much to offer you, every single person you meet, look for the gold in them. Be an archaeologist, someone that looks for in every person that thing that is unique, special, or that you can learn from them. And if you do that, you'll not only honor every person you meet, but you'll also constantly be enriching yourself with the best of every person you meet. I had some great teachers. They didn't maybe know they were teachers for me at the time, but I was listening and I was soaking it all up. It all became part of the textbook for life for me. So tell us from AIM Healthcare where you went and what you're able to learn from there. If you're saving up money to try to make another transition or what was going on? Yeah. So at that point, I actually was, that company was going so fast and I was actually trying to position for trying to get a little piece of equity. It never materialized. And I realized that a deal was about to happen and I was not going to be a part of it. The other thing, I was making the most money I ever had in my life. I think my total income in that final year to aim was like $180,000. Going from $7 an hour to that, I thought my ship had come in and all my dreams had come true. And why would you ever leave? But I recognized that actually I was missing some of the heart of what I was doing. The people part had been lost for me. Maybe impulsively, I was in a pretty good place financially. I jumped into joining with a few other friends and colleagues that had this crazy idea of going and using all this entrepreneurial skill to launch a nonprofit. So we helped form this concept called the Dispensary of Hope, which in short version was basically a logistical supply chain model that connected pharmaceutical companies, which by law had to produce drugs in batches. And there was always this little bit left over. So they had this little bit extra. But what do they do with that extra? Well, they burned it in incinerators and they had to dispose of it at a great cost. Environmental waste, no good. On the flip side, at the time, we had a healthcare crisis. There was uh, millions of Americans could not afford their prescription drugs. We realized there was this unique opportunity to create like a 0% waste solution for the pharmaceutical business and then a what we call it 100% hope solution for all the uninsured. There was literally enough medicine being wasted in America. And we're talking about medication that is sitting in a warehouse in a pharmaceutical firm under their jurisdiction. So we're not talking about medicine in your cabinet here. This was a very viable solution. We worked with the FDA. We built a solution. We built a network across the country with healthcare systems, all the way, including a network from there to churches and community advocates in between. Super hard work. And I was applying some of my healthcare knowledge, some of my healthcare connection, but very in the deep end of taking something from nothing into a national network. This still exists today. If you go to dispensaryofhope.org, it's an amazing model. Some of my deepest friends still work there and lead that program. I also learned that raising grants to help fund something like this, like from the Clinton Initiative or the Gates Foundation, et cetera. And also trying to pull together all of these people trying to do good. I also learned that just your tax status, for-profit, non-profit, does not necessarily imply right motive and nor does it ensure right outcomes. In other words, there was a lot of dysfunction in the nonprofit world. And I realized that I, in fact, did want to both generate wealth and also do good in the world. But I realized that nonprofit was a cumbersome way to do that, at least in my experience. So I did that for a couple of years. One second. Did you have to take a big salary dump from there? If you said you're making 180 and then going into a nonprofit. Oh, yeah. More than cut my income in half. That seems like a big decision, especially if you're in your late 20s. You thought everything was going well at the other company. It seemed like you had jumped up a lot. <laughs> to be able to do that, like I said, your young 20s, early 30s, it's pretty impressive for me. I don't know if I could have done that. Like I said, two things. One, my wife is willing to take risk with me. She's a saint. And second of all, I did describe this as an impulsive move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so I recognize in retrospect, like I literally, even when I left AIM, I left behind, I think, additional $50,000 bonus. God. And I'd got myself to a place where I was so convinced that I'd lost my soul in the process of doing this great work, but I kind of felt like I lost my bearings a little bit. Instead of just a small course correction, I was like, all right, I'm going to do a deep dive. I'm just going to jump off this cliff and jump into this thing. And it was enough where I could still pay my bills. And there was a path towards increasing my um, nonprofits. I actually pay their executives really well. They tend to have very moderate bases, but then actually pay incentives for outcomes. So the other thing that's interesting is what also drew me to this was at that time, it was starting to come in vogue, this idea of social enterprise. So this idea of not just living on grants, but actually going out and building a model that could be self-sustaining and in fact could actually exist as a for-profit with a social cause. And so kind of had a vision to steer it that direction so it could become more profitable in time. But after three or four years, my greatest takeaway was you can do good in the world any place. It can be a nonprofit. It doesn't have to be. And also I felt limited to your point, limited by the financial model and the constraints and seeing the opportunity of what you could actually do with a more profit-driven model. There's a great book called Conscious Capitalism. Have you read it? 
I'm sure someone has, but tell us about it. Okay. Great book. The co-founder of Whole Foods and then an economist co-wrote this book. They introduce it to say that, first of all, the first premise is that you know, we talk about business and we talk about the father of modern capitalism and this idea that the ultimate outcome is profit. And they actually reposition that dig actually into the original writings, they actually know the idea of modern capitalism is actually the ultimate outcome is value. One of those values is profit. And if you take that approach, you elevate this to a stakeholder model where your employees, your shareholders, your board of directors, your customers, even your vendors and suppliers, they all get elevated to a stakeholder level and your objective is to create value one of those being profit. So profit isn't your motivator. Profit is an outcome. Your motivation is your purpose. They lay out this really effective and clear model, and they talk about how they actually executed that at Whole Foods. And not just that, but they go on to share about 100 businesses across the United States that have also followed a similar framework and how actually they're yielding better results in the stock market and in their value of their shares when they take this approach. It's a great model, struck a chord with me. And I said, okay, I'm going to take the heart of the nonprofit. I'm going to apply it to a for-profit and I'm going to look for how I can do good through commerce. So yeah, you read this book and you're like, time for me to go. That's like time for me to go. Yeah. Did you think about this time when you left? I did. I'll tell you, this time I wrestled because unlike the later years at AIM, where I felt sort of soulless, this time I actually had developed deep relationship with the people I worked with. There was a lot of soul in the work. There was a lot of meaning. I went home every day feeling very fulfilled and it was starting to work. So it was really, really hard and painful to step away from this one. But along the way, it seems like every step unveiled something new for me. In this case, it was technology. I had mentioned before, AIM was a little bit about not just healthcare and entrepreneurialism, but also the utility of technology to solve problems. In this case, we had to use a lot of technology to advance things forward. I became much more involved in tech a new opportunity sort of unveiled, which was one of the owners at AIM Healthcare. It has since been acquired and he was in a more liquid position. One of the other guys I had worked with at AIM and then two other friends I'd met, we all got together and said, there's a real opportunity for us to use our technology and entrepreneurial experience. We can seed it with this initial investor. We ended up doing some angel rounds and put together a mobile app company. I'll tell you, it had multiple versions, everything from a rewards program that was going to be leveraging our healthcare connections and which we still had really warm connections. We were going to reward program for them that fell apart last minute. We started looking at it like a loyalty rewards program at that time didn't really exist much. So we would have been an early entrant into that. And we ended up backing into an online mobile ordering platform that we were at the time pitching to both grocery stores and farmers and restaurants, anybody in the food continuum. The experiences here are basically you do what works. Yes, you put together a five-year business plan and yes, you fund appropriately and all of that. But guess what? It becomes meaningless the moment your plan doesn't work and you stop doing the things that aren't producing customers and revenue and you keep doing the things that are. And so we ended up down this more narrow path than we ever intended, which is we ended up being an online ordering and native mobile app company for restaurants. To go technologies, it's still a thriving business today. And my friend, Sean Shankel, who was part of that original team, he's now the CEO of that company and they support thousands of restaurants across the country. But the interesting story here is, other than that, let me tell you, this was a <laughs> this was going through the desert. I mean, literally when I say like, we stop doing the things that don't work and you start doing the things that do. I mean, we tried every angle, every potential customer segment from gas stations to food trucks, you name it. We went down every road to see what would stick and see where we could be disruptive in the marketplace. And at the very end, we put our pitch together and the chairman and one of our investors, Michael Bodner, and I hopped on an airplane, went out to Silicon Valley, prepare some meetings for us. And we pitched to try to raise a little over $20 million in capital. And talk about other than the nights that my three children were born, talk about nights that you don't sleep. <laughs> it was terrifying and exhilarating at the same time, but great honor to be able to go and sit in front of the top investment firms and to sit there. And we actually almost pulled off a deal there was a, one of the tech firms was actually looking at bundling together a mobile app and like an Epson printer and a small mobile POS. And they're going to bundle together and sell it to small retailers in India and make commerce and retail happen better there. So we almost were part of this deal. Last second, it fell apart. We fly back to Nashville. We were preparing for a board meeting and I basically called an emergency board meeting. I knew this going in. 
but I looked at our books. I was burnt out. We were out of money at our current structure and right on the brink of, we were basically profitable, but we weren't going to be able to sustain it with the team that we had built. In other words, we had built a team anticipating that we were going to go get this money. We didn't get the money, came back and realized, okay, we're going to have to shrink down to a much smaller team and I'm going to fire myself. That's what you did? You heard me. <laughs> That's right. So you were the CEO of this to-go technologies. Yes. I was the co-founder and CEO. While I was out basically working on raising capital and some partnerships that I put a team in place that really was running the business. And so when the capital didn't come through, we recognized really the best thing I could do and really my fiduciary responsibility to our investors and shareholders was to put the company in the best position to succeed. Take your big salary out of the company? <laughs> yep. There it goes. <laughs> no, Boom. I, I want to summarize it for everyone because, man, my head's spinning all the stuff that you've done. All right. So basically, when you moved up from Clearwater, Florida, you're basically making nothing, $7 an hour as a band guy. And then you go to this AIM Healthcare, you work your way up, make a lot of money, leave a lot of money behind to go help everybody at Dispensary of Hope, right? And then you decide you wanted to go technologies. You go back to the guys that you used to work with at AIM, and they felt bad for you because you left all the salary. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> I'm joking, obviously. But yeah, <laughs> just so everyone understands. Yeah. So like you must have still had a good relationship with them because I didn't want anyone yeah. to miss that part. You went back to the company that you used to work for. And then there's a couple of these guys that help you put together to-go technologies, this app that you're doing. Yeah, that's right. And you're already setting up the next bridge, which is, I had mentioned we started with one investor from AIM, but then we branched out to some other investors. And so one of those guys was Michael Bodner. Turned out to be a really important figure in my life, not just as an investor, but he ran a company called uh, Fresh Hospitality. And Michael Bodner was go way back into the 70s and 80s. And he was Dave Thomas's, one of his right-hand men to help him grow the Wendy's brand. He himself, a technologist and helped really innovate the restaurant space. And from the operations and technology side, he ends up being the CEO of Shoney's. He semi-retires and comes out of that and says, what I want to do with the wealth I've built, but also the expertise I've built, instead of just retiring, traveling the world, he said, I want to go help young chefs, farmers, entrepreneurs succeed. And so he goes and finds Nick Bahakis with Jim and Nick's Barbecue and helps him go from one location to really building a big brand. He goes and finds Keith Richards with Tzatziki's, who at the time had three locations. I think maybe they had grown to about 10 and said, I can help you grow this brand. I'll invest the money. I'll be your personal mentor and I'll help wrap around the right technology and I'll bring in other talent to help you run this brand. And so Mike Fresh Hospitality had invested in Keith Richards and Tzatziki's 10 years ago while I'm on this other journey, the two came together because my mobile app company ended up building the online ordering platform for Fresh Hospitality and Tzatziki's. And when I left the mobile app company to go technologies, Mike said, come work with me. We're kindred in the desire to help young entrepreneurs grow. You've done a bunch of startup companies. You've been through the highs and lows. And you know a little bit about the restaurant business now since you've been immersed in building technology for it. But I'm going to really teach you how to be a restaurant operator and bring you into this world. So I joined Fresh. I helped him with sort of the Shark Tank environment where they were starting to talk to more up and coming young chefs and foodies and farmers, got to meet with a bunch of farmers that we made investment in, got to meet with a bunch of restaurateurs that we made investments in and brought them into the Fresh Hospitality fold. And then he said, I have a signature project I would like you to lead. And I said, okay, that sounds either really good or really bad. I'm not sure. He said, well, you know, he explained to me, he grew up on dirt floors in West Virginia. He went to the University of West Virginia in Morgantown, and uh, he had an opportunity to go back and partner with the university to do a public-private partnership to build a $35 million building that would be a new student union on the campus, and it would feature six of the fresh hospitality restaurants, including a Tzatziki's. And I said, you recognize I've really never run a restaurant before. He said, yes. He said, actually, it's bigger than that. You actually have to work on the design, build, operate, the whole spectrum. And so that became a project where it helped me to learn the restaurant business, helped me to learn everything from the real estate side, the architectural design side. Actually, we helped co-develop a few brands to be part of that new student center. And in the process, I became a Tzatziki's franchisee. I essentially was a franchisee of each of these brands. And I learned the Tzatziki's model and it helped operate it for two years. And so that was kind of my pull into the restaurant space and then ultimately down the Tzatziki's road. All right. So that makes sense. And then we can go down more in depth of what you learned at Tzatziki's. But why don't you tell us a few things that you learned at this Fresh Hospitality? Again, this is kind of your fourth company, if you will. So we keep it straight. I mean, it's easier for me because I'm looking at your profile. But anyone who's listening right now, I think they're head spinning as far as like <laughs> kind of the jumps that you've made. 
this is again the fourth company that we're talking about so everyone's on the same page here but tell us since you didn't really know anything about the restaurant industry for anyone who's listening like me who doesn't know anything about the restaurant industry what did you learn business-wise from doing this well first thing is that every business starts with a dollar bill and you break it down. And so in the restaurant business, the first principles are, at least in our world is if you're take for every dollar, we were going to take 30 cents of it and we were going to pay the best people we could find. And then we were going to take 25 cents of it and we were going to intentionally partner with farmers to get the best ingredients we could find. Five cents of that will go to supplies and all that. So you basically have a basic model where of every dollar you're going to spend 60 cents and have a 40% gross profit as a model. And then if you do a good job finding the right real estate and keeping your overhead sensible, you can walk away with between 10 and 20% EBITDA. And so just starting with, okay, that's basic framework. That makes sense. Then I recognize immediately that, okay, well, there's a lot of parts I just talked about. Okay, how do you find the best people in low unemployment and how do you train them to where they have upper mobility? And so that's an easy part, right? Though Yeah, that's easy. <laughs> I'm joking. Particularly now, right? So one of the things that I mentioned this earlier that was key was that this restaurant group recognized that they didn't want to just have this empire where they had lots of employees. What they wanted was partners. And so they looked for young people, even young people like me, who said, oh, this person could be one of our long-term partners We're going to bring them in, invest in them, and we're going to give them ownership. One of the unique things in, at least in our restaurant group, is people that come in can start at the bottom. And we have just dozens and dozens of examples of people that start at the bottom, a dishwasher or a line cook, and they're a manager and now an owner. And so they have an opportunity to become a 20% owner in their restaurant. That model is really powerful. It changes the dynamic about, creates a magnet for the best people to come and stay and view it as a career and not just a stepping stone job. On the employment side, I love that part. It's a great model. It's more generous than maybe they need to be. I think it's really smart. It has created wealth for a lot of people. And then find the best ingredients. Well, that's easy, right? Well, it could be really easy if you're just looking for commodity food items. But when you really look at what are the flavors that really matter, that takes a lot of attention to set up the right sourcing partners. So like Tzatziki's has over 30 proprietary items that we've sourced directly from specific farmers that we source. And the other thing too is I also learned like in any business, if you want to just take a cost accounting approach, you can squeeze all kinds of costs and increase your bottom line. But what sets the great companies apart is when they find certain virtues and values and corners they will not cut. So when I came into Fresh Hospitality, we make everything from scratch. Well, wait a minute, everything? Yep, we make everything from scratch. Okay, wait a minute, we could do this a lot more affordably if we only made maybe like 10 token items from scratch. Everything else would come in process. Nope, nothing comes in bags. All the produce starts whole every single morning. We chop it, we prep it, we make it from scratch, we serve it to order. And so that's been an ethic. And so it helped me to recognize that you don't always get credit for everything you do for your customer. But part of what a brand is, is not just what they say about themselves. It's even the things that are so deeply embedded and so core in value or virtue. They say, we're going to do this because we think this is the right way to do this. This is the high road of how you sustain long time, how you have credibility long term. Look at all the restaurants started that way. Even Wendy's, Mike Bottom will tell stories about Wendy's all beef, hand patty burger, hand cut fries, the stuff that is now Five Guys or Shake Shack is novelty and new. That's the way all the burgers place did it back then because that was the virtue and the value that was at the heartbeat of their brand. It's just easy to cut corners as you go along in life and try to make an extra point here or there. So I love the fact that there was a great philosophy about people, a great philosophy about ingredients and also the discipline, commitment to making things from scratch. We all have that friend who's the first one to try things. Whether they're super trendy or more of a guinea pig, when you're making a choice, it's always nice to hear it from someone who's been there and done that. Choosing the right software for your business is no different. Read thousands of real software reviews to help you choose the right software for your business on captera.com millionaire. Captera is the leading free online resource to help you find the best software solution for your business. With over 850,000 reviews of products from real software users. Discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 categories of software. Everything from project management to CRMs to email marketing to yoga studio management software. Well, just basically any category you can think of, they have covered. I used Captera to check the top audio editing software and web conferencing software to make sure we're using the best products for editing and recording this podcast. 
So no matter what kind of software your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com slash millionaire for free today to find the tools to make an informed software decision for your business. Captera.com slash millionaire. Captera, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com slash millionaire. Captera, software selection simplified. Need a new logo for your current or future business? Well, BrandCrowd is an awesome logo maker tool that can help you make an amazing logo design online. If you're an entrepreneur, startup founder, innovator, thought leader, or basically anyone who owns a business, well, BrandCrowd is a fantastic and easy way to get a logo. BrandCrowd takes your business name and industry and generates thousands of logos in seconds. BrandCrowd uses high-quality, handcrafted designs created by designers from around the world to create custom logos just for you. Once BrandCrowd generates a logo you like, you can edit and tweak the logo, changing fonts and colors until it is perfect for you. One of the best things about BrandCrowd is it's free to get started and begin generating logos. Plus, it's super easy to use. Once you're happy with your logo, you can download all the files you need to start your business. If you don't like any of the designs, no problem, you don't have to pay. So to find out more about BrandCrowd, go check out braincrowd.com forward slash maker. That's B-R-A-N-D-C-R-O-W-D.com forward slash maker. Well, can you tell us for the Mediterranean? Because it makes sense what you're saying about first comparing five guys to then fast food, the McDonald's or whatever. But how about comparing yourself to Zeke's to another Mediterranean cafe? Because to mine, it almost seems like everything always needs to be fresh at all of them. Tell me the difference because it's hard for me to visualize since I don't go to Mediterranean cafes all the time. Yeah. So it's interesting. The comparison is really something that has become popular is like a gyro that is really processed meat and other preservatives on a spit. So it's different. Like we partner with lamb farmers in central Michigan. We've met them. We know them. And we bring in a full leg of lamb and butcher it on site twice a day to have hand cut lamb in the gyro. And so that's a long, hard, more expensive way to get a premium product. Now, the shortcut is really tasty, but it's basically where you take lamb or parts of lamb and you take beef or parts of beef and you take a lot of preservatives and some other non-disclosed ingredients and it gets all smushed together and put into a cone and then you use a knife and you scrape it off and that's gyro meat on a spit. It's very popular. Again, it's very tasty. If I'm on a street in New York City and there's a cart and they're selling one, I'm going to order one. It tastes great. But our ethic and the importance of from the beginning with Keith, our founder was, we wanted to say, look, if you go to Greece or you go to Lebanon, you go to any place in the Mediterranean, you walk into somebody's home kitchen, how do they do it? And that sort of foundation of doing it the hard way, because it's the real way. We're in alignment with Kimball Musk. Elon Musk's brother has been a real vocal leader of the real food movement. It's new and sexy, but it's not really. It's just the way that our grandparents would make everything. We've gotten into so much processed food and fast food and convenient food that you kind of lose realness along the way. So we just never lost it. We just kind of kept it from the beginning of let's do it real. Let's just always do it real. And in the Greek Mediterranean space, there are other great quote unquote fresh concepts that even use that name in their marketing, but their salads come out of a bag and it's just opening up, dumping in a bin and you can taste the difference. It's not a great salad versus. Yeah. Versus yours. Give us some more examples. Yeah. The lamb example is perfect because I don't have any restaurant background to <laughs> understand really the difference. Yeah. So our number one selling item is the lamb gyro and we have a variety of different gyros that are again all handmade. They're great. After that salads, we have uh, an authentic Greek salad. Are you getting that locally? Yeah. So all of our produce and all of our markets, all of our stores is always sourced locally. Here's one great example. In the national market where I live and we have one of our thriving markets, we partner with a farming group called Cultivate. And Cultivate is a local farming group, but they're not just, and they grow our tomatoes and cucumbers and a variety of other produce. But they also, what's cool about Cultivate is they actually rehabilitate men that are either coming out of jail or some other transitional time of their life. Okay. Versus you said these other restaurants might get a bag of lettuce. And to me, I might still think that's fresh, you know, but you're just saying that you're going somewhere a couple of miles away where they're growing and yeah. actually bringing it in. Yes. They're delivering it. We have produce that has grown that week. Big thing in supply chain in America is we actually have a really safe and good supply chain. You hear things in the news where things happen, but by and large, you think about the amount of food that grown and travels. But the opportunity here is that our food on average travels about 2000 miles 
that we buy in a grocery store or we eat at a restaurant. Some of that is seasonality. You have to have stability, but some of that is we can do better. And with locally grown food that doesn't travel as far, doesn't require the preservatives and some of the other transportation costs, environmental impact, et cetera. So there's a lot of upside to locally grown produce and not just that, but the supporting the local farmers. We're paying the same price to get premium local produce that we would if it was grown in California or Mexico. It is a better product. Right. If you're just looking at raw numbers, you might think the thing that you're getting in California and bringing in, it looks cheaper. But if you're bringing in all the cost of the transportation, everything, you know, your sole focus might just be on health and it being really local and fresh, but it might be exact cost comparable because yeah. you're not transporting it as far as well. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So you look at the total impact, not just in our system, but also across all restaurants across the country. It's one of the trade-offs we made to get food cheaper and have a longer shelf life. And the tide's starting to turn to realize there's also disadvantages to that. And there's advantages we can create through local farming, whether greenhouse farming, container farming, and just traditional local farms that are starting to have a resurgence. So it's pretty exciting. Tzatziki's, I fell in love with the brand. I fell in love with the founder. And along the way, Mike Bodner, who was the chairman of the board of Tzatziki's and Fresh Hospitality said, hey, we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary. At that point, they were at the 18-year mark. They're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of Tzatziki's. We want to bring in some new perspective and we want someone to come out and help us sort of figure out what we need to change, innovate, what to keep, what to change, and put together a plan for the next five years and ultimately a 20-year vision. So that's a really amazing opportunity. So I joined a little over three years ago as the chief innovation officer. And I came in really with the goal of, you know, number one, find out what the heart and the vision of the founder was from the beginning. Where did we stray? Every brand, if you the life cycle of a company, you stray along the way and you take right turns and wrong turns. And it's important, certainly at a mile marker, at a birthday like 20 to stop and say, hey, how do we need to recalibrate? So that was my first objective. And that led to the second piece, which was I learned that the store design was faithful, but a little bit tired. There was an opportunity that the founder really would have loved if he could do it all over again to have more of a coastal Mediterranean look and feel. So we started to work with the designers from Strata Architecture who designed some of Google's headquarters. And we started to look at how do we bring the blue, a white terracotta back into the store. And so we moved from kind of an old world design to a coastal Mediterranean design. We're hoping to refresh all of our stores by the end of 2020. That's off to the races. And then technology, no surprise. Using my background, realized that we were behind in technology. We had a lot of technology on the restaurant operations side, but it too needed to be updated. We were really behind when it came to mobile ordering and rewards programs and email marketing and a lot of modern ways to interact with our guests. And so we've put together a technology innovation strategy as well. And last but not least was really a culture invigoration project. And that was we wanted to clarify who we were, where we're going and do a better job at aligning our whole system. As you grow, it's easy for you to splinter or at least stray. And so those are like the first five initiatives that I worked on as chief innovation officer, started to put together a five-year plan. And then a little over a year ago, the board came back and said, we'd like you to stay on as the CEO. Do you sleep at all? <laughs> well, when I come home, actually, <laughs> you don't sound like my wife always says after a full day with three kids and they're traveling soccer and ballet and all that jazz too. Then I come home. I was like, what are you doing? And like, I'm listening to a podcast. <laughs> You're listening, listening to this to, podcast. Yeah, yeah. that's right. I'm, <laughs> I'm filling my head with, but it's also like a lot of this is like, you have to do things in life to fill up your wealth. So if you're going to be a high octane person who moves fast and get a lot done and goes on all these crazy adventures and is willing to take risks and go do new things, you have to do intentional things to fill up your wealth. And podcasts, Audible, along some other things are some of those ways I fill up my wealth. So you come on as chief innovation officer, you already named off all the stuff you do. And then a year later there, you don't sleep. So why don't you be our CEO? I don't understand <laughs> like how you're able to just be CEO from there. It seems kind of crazy. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if you go, I thought the same thing. I actually said <laughs> to them, like, are you sure? I'm really more of an entrepreneurial guy that does more early stage and this brand is evolved. And they said, look at what a CEO does. Number one is they set a clear vision and working with the founder, I was able to do that. And number two, they really obsess about culture and they are obsessed about people. I remember what I said earlier about, remember whatever business you're in, you're in the people business. That has been my bellwether. And it was easier for me to travel around the country, visit every Tzatziki's partner and ask them, why did you get in this? What was your dream? Is it on track? Is it off track? How do I help it get back on track? So connecting with people, having empathy 
for them and with them, but also the business skills to come in and help them put together a good plan moving forward. And then the other part about being a CEO is a lot about surrounding yourself with really good people. It isn't that you have to know everything or even have deep domain experience in everything. So I brought people mindedness and I brought technology and I brought the entrepreneurial spirit. And remember, we're a franchise business. So everybody we partner with is like me. They're franchisees and therefore they're entrepreneurs. Key thing for me to be successful is bringing in Mike Smith, our VP of Ops, bringing in Rachel Layton, our VP of Marketing and Growth, and our new director of training, and on and it goes, like surrounding myself and ourselves with people that live up to the brand values and are smarter than me in every area possible. That's key for my job. Well, looking back, it all seemed pretty easy for you. <laughs> like I said in the beginning, if you look backwards, there's some common threads of people in technology and creativity and entrepreneurialism. But if you start at the beginning, there's no way in hell you'd come up with this story. It seems like the hardest part for you was when you moved to Nashville and thought you had a job and didn't have a job for a couple of months right after you got married. Was that the hardest part of going through all these businesses? I mean, just tell us about some of the, yeah. the more difficult times. I think some of the people listening need to understand they're probably going through those from time to time as far as those moments, because those aren't always the fun things, but I think we can learn from that even more. Yeah, boy, what a great and probably the most important question. So, I mean, I think the first thing is, unless you're one of those people who wakes up with a rattle in their hand and says, Dada, I want to be a doctor. They have this perfect clarity of what they want to do with their life. I was not one of those people. So I think the first obstacle and the first hardship is just not knowing what's going to happen next and not knowing where all this is going and having patience to let life unfold, not controlling it, but sort of just as every door opens and door closes, being able to be discerning and patient without having this like manuscript or this narrative in front of you. I couldn't see all of this was going to happen, but, but learning to trust. There's a great book, The Alchemist. It's a classic. If you haven't read it, you should. But it's a lot about, can you trust that there's maybe a larger narrative and flow to life and not have to get so caught up when something like your job does fall through and it looks like the end of the road? It's not the end of the road. So I think that's the first thing. The second thing is, remember, I'm like a 20-year-old guy, a 30-year-old guy. So I'm coming from a broken family. I had to do my own work. I went to counseling and therapy. I had to figure out, chase away my own demons and work through my own father wound challenges. And like any other human being, it isn't just going on these quests where you're armed with capital and you're going to go build a business. You live with yourself and you bring yourself to every one of these meetings and every one of these opportunities. So continue to do my own work was hard. It was inconvenient, hard moments what happened when I'm in the middle of big business transactions and I had to deal with both at the same time. And I'm a newly married guy and my wife and I will be married 19 years coming up in April, but it's taken us a while to figure it out. A marriage isn't easy. They call it a honeymoon period for a reason because after the honeymoon period is not a honeymoon period. Not only do you got to figure out yourself, you got to figure out another human being and figure out how to be your best selves. And then I would say every job I took and every step I took, let someone think I wasn't scared and I was just filled with this sort of endless optimism and courage. Like I was scared at every step. But honestly, like you don't sound like it, dude. You sound like so positive. <laughs> I'm asking you about your negatives and you're like, woo, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you like sound yeah. like the most positive person I might've had on so far as far as even talking about that, which is fantastic. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's but to me, when you're switching jobs, it almost doesn't even sound like it was that big of a deal. Well, definitely. I was born with a hope that dies hard and with a lot of optimism. I think I would say for anyone that's out there that's an entrepreneur and you feel like anything in your childhood, a broken family or relations that went sour or job that didn't work out, let me tell you, your greatest assets are actually what has gone wrong because that is what has given me optimism because I keep realizing, oh, wait a minute, that just happened. I didn't die. Oh, it's going to be okay. And you learn perseverance and grit. If you have an easy upbringing, if you have too much money and you're too good looking and your life is too easy, you don't have a lot of grit. Are you talking about me? I am talking about you. <laughs> I was trying to be like so subtle about it. Come on. Yeah. We were supposed to do that after the interview. No. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. But when I took the leap from Tampa Bay to Nashville, I mean, I left behind my friends, my bandmates. I left behind a job. It wasn't making a lot, but it was something. And I had to take a leap. That was scary. We lived on credit cards for three months. I remember going to the gas station where I literally swiped the card and didn't know if it was going to work or not. And so there was those hard moments. And then literally when we have nothing left, I get a phone call with a job offer those just-in-time moments get you through and build your faith. When I jumped from AIM, I was excited. Then I found out I lost the bonus and I felt like an idiot and I was hard on myself. It's like, it's so impulsive. What did you do that for? And then when I jumped again, I left behind again friends. Most of my steps, again, I stepped backwards financially and was able to build it up again. But those are hard 
choices to sort of make you reflect on your values and where you're trying to go. I would say throughout all this process, I ended up going back to school and got my MBA because I also tell you through this process, I had self-doubts. I was doing all these remarkable things. I was making remarkable choices for the right reasons, but I wondered, do I really know what the hell I'm talking about? Am I full of shit or could I do this again? Maybe the next time it won't work. Those are terrible doubts that cloud most entrepreneurs. And so I wanted to go to get my MBA just to hold it up to the light, hold my experience and what I thought up to light. And what I learned was, oh, wow, about 80 to 85% was I actually did know what I was talking about and I did great in my MBA. And the other part filled in gaps and it was really validating. And I got to actually speak on behalf of my class at the graduation. And the talk was about courage. I thought all this time I felt afraid through many of these steps. And I thought the courage is something that some people have and some people don't. And actually, I thought I was one of the people that didn't have it. And what I've learned while I was doing these work projects and married with three kids and doing my MBA all at the same time, yes, not sleeping, listening to podcasts, <laughs> what I learned was courage is not something you have. Courage is something you do. That's the only difference between the people that end up building an interesting life and successfully launching things. And failure is part of the success. But courage, it's not, you don't look in the mirror and say, do I have it or do I not? That guy has it, I don't. That's not how it works. It's you have it when you take the first step. Biggest learning for me in all of this has been, okay, I've lived a life where I keep moving forward. I keep taking that step. I'm as scared as anybody. I don't know half the time. I've never been a CEO of a $100 million business before, but it ultimately comes back to the same fundamentals that you use to run a startup company and you just do it with smarter, better, bigger people with more resources and you apply the learnings that I've learned so far. Well, looking back like we just did, is there anything else that you want to leave with everyone who's listening now before we get off the call as far as inspiration or anything to keep them motivated? Life is short. I'd say get as much clarity as you can about not so much what the latest thing is or what pays the most money, but if you can get clarity about what you're passionate about, what you're gifted in and move towards doing that. Remember you have agency. Don't settle for the idea that you're stuck. I have several friends who like, ah, oh, I'm stuck in this corporate job and I hate it. And I have this big idea. You have one life and you have agency. You have choice. It might take a while to figure out how to get from here to there, but leverage your agency and recognize you always have choice. And then don't worry too much if your path forward is not a straight line. I raise my hand as one of the many whose story is a curvy, wavy line, unpredictable. And I don't know where it goes from here. I love where I am. But don't worry too much if your life doesn't look like this perfect resume or a straight line. They say uh, bad choices make good stories. And I think curvy career paths make good stories too. And I guess they should try to look up Tzatziki's and go to the local one to support you for doing the interview. Yes. Love to have you come to Tzatziki's. You can go to tzatziki'scafe.com and get our website, find a location, download our app and support a lot of entrepreneurs and young business professionals. Choose Tzatziki's for a healthier lifestyle and a great business lunch, cater, deliver to your office. So we definitely want to help feed and fuel you as you're on your journey towards your passion, hopefully towards your millions too. Well, and if anyone wants to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Yeah, you can reach me at dsimpson at tzatzikiscafe.com. D-S-I-M-P-S-O-N at tzatzikiscafe.com. All right. Well, thank you for joining us, Dan. Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the podcast. After each episode, I ask our guests a few additional questions, such as, what's your favorite tool or program that makes your business more efficient? What business book have you learned the most from? And what's the biggest challenge still holding your company back? If you want the answers to these questions and other ones as well, then head over to our website, millionaire-interviews.com. You'll find the answers and much, much more at the bottom of each podcast episode. In other news, if you want to leave us feedback about the show, give us a call or text us on our new hotline. Simply dial 1-305-985-3477. The best comments, questions, or feedback will be shared on a future episode, so don't be scared to get creative. <laughs>